Welcome to another episode of Compressed FM, a podcast all about web design and development with a little bit of zest. In today's episode, we have a special guest, Brad Garapy. And Brad used to be a developer at Adobe, and now he's at Atlassian working on their Trello team. One of Brad's favorite things is creating tools that help automate and make our experiences developers even easier. So I just absolutely love this stuff. So Brad, welcome to the podcast. I think this is your second time on the show. That's right. I think the first time we did a crossover episode together. We did. So hello, my name is Amy Dutton. I'm the director of design at Zeal. My normal co-host, James Quick, is still out traveling, but I'm excited he's out and I get to have a conversation with you. Sweet. What development and design, who would have guessed? Well, we can do them both, even add a little zest. So turn up the volume, get ready for the best. Let's get it started in this episode of Compress. Today, we have two fabulous sponsors with Hashnode and Daily.dev. Hashnode is a wonderful blogging platform that not only makes it easy to get a blog up and running quickly, but has a wonderful community that will get more eyeballs on your work faster, helping you grow your own community. And Daily.dev is a browser extension that will help you stay up to date on all the latest and greatest news within the tech industry. It's very easy to install and recommendations are tailored specifically to you. So more from each of these sponsors later in the show. You have some parenting tips, which I'm excited about. I know every time I hear the podcast and I hear you talk about your kids and stuff, I'm like, I can so relate, you know, and so... I don't know. For me and my wife recently, we've been just kind of doing a lot more with our kids now that kind of COVID is dying down. We like took them to their first baseball game. We took them on a trip to Mexico. How did that go? Oh, man. Mexico was it was awesome. They really, really loved the beach. Okay. But I will say there was a lot of walking in town. So we definitely Mm -hmm. had to get a golf cart to like make life easier. Okay. So we just booked a cruise in October It's a Disney cruise and it goes through Cozumel, Mexico. So super excited about that. The kids are excited because they had to get a passport and all that. Our kids' passport pictures are hilarious. We we got them taken (laughs) when they were like one, you know, so they couldn't even like, didn't even know where to look. Mm. We had to keep like retaking and retaking because we did it at Walgreens and they have this little kiosk that you go up to and you upload your picture into the kiosk and it has to fit their dimensions or their AI requirements. And my youngest, she kept tilting her head. (laughs) (laughs) They had to keep retaking it. Okay, sorry. So you were saying you've done all these fun things with your kids. You had a couple more listed. Yeah, we took them like a little local festival in Georgetown. It's like north of Austin. There was like a live band. Mm -hmm. They were dancing and stuff. And, you know, we've just been pushing them. And I Mm -hmm. think my parenting tip is like, your kids are always going to surprise you, you know, take Mm -hmm. them to fun stuff, push them outside of their comfort zone, and they're going to do really well. I second that. We haven't done this as much with COVID, but people used to ask us like, how come your kids are so well behaved in restaurants? And we're like, we take them to restaurants. (laughs) Like that's, that's the tip. We were going to Chili's every Tuesday, little middle-class fancy But we would make them order their own food and talk directly to the waitress. And this is how you act in a restaurant. And it makes all the difference when they understand that. Whereas, I mean, not to be judgy, but other parents are like, my kids don't behave well, so we're just not going to go to a restaurant. And I hate that for them, that they kind of limit their own lifestyle because of what they think their kids can or can't handle. Yeah. Talk about being like nervous in places like we were in the airport and going through customs, you know, and definitely like... (laughs) tense situations but like the more you do that kind of stuff with your kids where you have an expectation with them they're gonna live up to it they're gonna learn Mm -hmm. yeah for sure that's a great tip okay so a good rant i always love a good rant (laughs) yeah this is uh this is a tough one because i had some goals this year i'm like i want to build a couple SaaS projects and i've been exploring ideas and like One of the things that just like really ticks me off is when you run into a brick wall on a side project or a SaaS idea. And I had this great idea where I was going to make this thing that like automatically posts to many Discord servers. So like if I make a podcast or a YouTube video or a blog and I need to share it, I was going to make a SaaS that kind of does this, shares it out everywhere. And little did I know, Discord actually has policies against that. It's called self-botting. You can't automate for yourself posting to many channels and uh interesting it's just super frustrating like number one i i feel like they should support something like that 
you know, mm-hmm. and just put in anti-spam measures or whatnot. But it just sucks to see like uh, an idea get so like stopped in its tracks when you come across something like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've had trouble recently with just APIs in general, like finding APIs to do the things that I want to do. There's, have you looked at Rapid API? Isn't that like the API marketplace where you can like search mm-hmm. and find things? I, yeah. yeah, I've seen that a little bit, but I haven't actually used anything off of there. Okay. I had one of their guys reach out to me and I kind of looked at it briefly for another project, but I was, I haven't dug too deep. I didn't know if you had experience with that. Okay, so as we get into the content, I really should have done this at the top of the show. I know Brad because we've had like all of three conversations, but I'm not sure if everybody knows you. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you do and things that interest you or where you work or a music anecdote? Yeah, so I would say I'm a self-taught developer, although I did have a college degree in electrical engineering. I kind of had to teach myself the software side of things. So I got my first kind of big break in web development at Adobe, where I kind of just used a bunch of side projects and personal portfolios to kind of build my brand and pitch myself to Adobe. And I've been doing front end work for them for like three years. And then like just recently, I transitioned over to Atlassian. I work on Trello as what they call a platform engineer. So like my job now is to make sure the code base and the tech inside of the code base is all healthy and works well together and that life is good for the folks working on the product. And it's a very different role than I've been in before, let me tell you. Mm. What's uh, different about it? You know, if you're working on like a product or a feature, typically you have like a very narrow focus and a very defined like scope and timeline and things like that. Mm -hmm. But a platform engineer's job is really like keep a pulse on what's going on And then any change that you make touches essentially the foundations of everything in the application. So Mm. it's risky and it's very broad and there's not a whole lot of guidance. So you have to have a team that has like a good vision and uh, a good understanding of what developers are going through. That's cool. So are you like trying to do code review on the entire code base at once? We we try not to. Uh, Our team team has to do like a really good job of setting boundaries. Like we don't own everything, even though we kind of touch everything. Okay. Very cool. Now, one of the things I always enjoy talking to you about is just like side projects and tooling and things like that. So you have a few notes. You want to walk me through some of your stuff? Yeah, for sure. I try to do a lot outside of work, you know, to keep my skills sharp and to try new things and, you know, try to make a little side hustle one day or something like that. But, you know, being productive as a developer and working on side projects is a whole lot more than just like a to-do list and a productivity system. You know, I think what makes me able to do all this stuff is the tooling and the things I've set up for myself to like make bootstrapping projects really quick. That way you're not having to like start from zero every single time. So like, I feel like I've along the way, you know, just built up artifacts for myself that start small and get bigger and bigger and bigger because they all kind of roll upwards into ultimately like entire project templates. So Mm -hmm. like I could start at the bottom of this list and kind of go up and just say like, these are the, the things, the breadcrumbs I've dropped for myself along the way that I continually reuse time and time again. The first one is dot files. Like if you've ever heard of a dot files repo, that's definitely one of the first things I set up. And if you're not familiar with what dot files are, it's a lot of times it refers to files that literally start with a dot in front of it. That's typically convention for like a file with configuration information in it or settings or something like that. But there are dot files for like your terminal or shell configuration. There's dot files for your ESLint configuration, your prettier configuration, all these Mm -hmm. different things. And I've just made a GitHub repo chock full of them that I reuse in pretty much every project that I do. Awesome. I can't wait to take a look at that. I'll drop a link in the show notes. I stumbled across Wes Boss's dot files the other day where he had a bunch of those all together. And I was like, this is a gold mine. (laughs) Yeah. And I try to put stuff in there that isn't just like one language specific, or they're not all strictly quote unquote, dot files. I'm curious what some of the stuff you include. I know, I got a new computer for work 
like several months ago, actually January, <laughs> it's been four months, but still trying to port over all that stuff like the dot files and get everything set up is just, it's a pain. I've been trying to document it so that the next time I have a computer, it almost becomes like a checklist to knock everything out. But when I first joined Adobe, I actually created like a new system repository that my aim was to script everything like every application mm-hmm. I used to copy all my settings from GitHub. And I made like decent progress there and mm-hmm. eventually just kind of abandoned that project. But like it's totally doable. You can install applications, mm-hmm. you can pull down all your configuration and like you could have a oh, wow. machine up and running in, you know, 10 minutes. Man, that sounds glorious. <laughs> Let's see some stuff that I have in my dot files. First and foremost, I have like my terminal configuration and all of my bash aliases. So mm-hmm. these are like, Nice little shortcuts for using Git or navigating to home directories or things like that. I have things in here like my package.json template that I use for everything. There's like a ton of fields in NPM's package.json. And I kind of just pull out the ones that I think are important and pre-populate it. Mm -hmm. And I even store configuration for like VS Code or my Stream Deck or OBS inside of this .files folder. I kind of use it as like a backup for all settings of applications on my machine too. Very cool. So do you have like a script that goes and pulls those down when you're working with them? Or do you just say go to GitHub and copy and paste? In some instances I do. So I have another utility I made called BNR backup and restore. And what that does is it automatically saves my stream deck, my OBS, my go XLR and my VS code settings. And I can push and pull those to and from GitHub. That's awesome. Yeah, because like, I don't know if you've ever set up a Stream Deck or like a GoXLR with audio equipment, like it's very difficult to get that stuff just right. So if you can put it in code and like save it somewhere, it saves a ton of time. Yeah, I do have a Stream Deck and I have set it up, but it took like a day to get it set up with all the buttons and configurations. And I don't even want to think about what would happen if it crashes. Yeah, so I would say like these DAW files are like the baseline, the the very lowest of building blocks that you can have. And then from there, I just kind of keep moving up. Like the -hmm. next place that I like to focus on developer productivity and moving quick is inside of my editor. Now, Mm. of course, we all have like our key binds that we like and things like that. But you can do a whole lot more to make coding go quicker. And so VS Code snippets is one of my favorite things to leverage, like that has a day to day impact, a minute to minute impact, even where you want to make a new React hook or a new React component or a new style sheet or something like that. And you can use like these little snippets. I made Mm -hmm. my own snippet library where I can type in RC and tab and then it just spits out a React component with like TypeScript integrated and some basic types there and like uh, a default export and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. There's a extension that VS Code has. I think it's just called Snippets, but it lets you manage all your snippets in the sidebar instead of having to always go through their JSON configuration. Yeah, the way you make snippets is like so janky when it comes to VS Code. Yes. But yeah, there's some good websites and extensions that help with that for sure. Mm-hmm. And I would say like, I know there's VS Code extensions out there that are snippet libraries. But Mm -hmm. I would like really push people to create your own because, you know, there's that one with like the super long name, like React, Redux, ESLint type, you know, next thing you know, the snippets are like 10 characters long that you're typing in because you have to specify kind of all your options and preferences. But if you just kind of Mm -hmm. set a convention for yourself, like I'm always using TypeScript and I'm always declaring components like this then it's not that hard to just publish your own snippet extension. And that way, like your preferences are baked in. And Mm -hmm. I'm finding that a lot of my productivity comes from these little like, I do things this way, and I'm going to bake it into everything that I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I use that library that you talked about, and I always end up modifying it. And to your point, it's like, why do I do that every single time? time. Whereas if I just made my own, it wouldn't be a thing. And really like... This is why I open source so much of my stuff too. My VS Code snippet library is open source. It's on my GitHub. We can put many links in the show notes and you'll see like it's not that hard to just throw some snippets in there and actually publish it to, uh, you know, the Microsoft VS Code marketplace. And then Mm -hmm. it feels really cool to like download your own extension on every (laughs) machine that you have. And so it's not just local. It's really cool. Oh, that's nice. Do you have stars? 
Have you checked? <laughs> do, uh, do I have stars? I don't know. I have 746 installs. What? On, that's yeah, awesome. On VS Code. That's awesome. I was I not expecting stars. that. Maybe that's all it is. I thought there was a star rating and a number of installs. My repo doesn't have stars, but I have 746 installs. That's awesome. That makes you legit. Well, uh, okay. If that makes me legit, then my next productivity hack might legitimize me even more. I'm super excited about this one because I'm very interested in it and I have no idea how to do it. So like we were talking about, like everything you do, you do it your way or you want to bake in your conventions and... I think taking that to the next level is make your own NPM packages. Like, for instance, the, the simplest NPM package I probably have is a wrapper around fetch that basically just assumes you're sending and receiving JSON out of the box. So you don't have to like mm. await fetch and then await response.json. It just assumes that if you're using the default function call from it. And that like saves mm-hmm. me so much time. I don't have to think about it. And so... You know, that and so many other little things I've made my own NPM packages for. And at the moment, I have about 30 very, very small packages that do these tiny, opinionated, conventionalized type things that work for me and my repositories. That's so cool. So what does the process look like for if you want to publish a package? So the process for publishing an NPM package really just comes down to the package.json file. You essentially include a package.json file in your project with the source code and that package.json file is like the entryway to your package it says when you import it what file am i looking at what's Mm. the name of my package and what version is it so if you're a javascript developer today you probably are familiar with all this but once that package.json file is there alongside your code you can really just use the npm cli to publish a package granted you have to log in you have to have an account But once you're authenticated through the CLI, it's as easy as running npm publish. And from there, it just looks at your package JSON. It it says, you told me all this information about who you are and what the package name is and what the version is. We now know where to put it up on the repository. That is so cool. So what's the name of the one that you mentioned earlier with fetch? It's at bradgarapy slash http. And that's just my my wrapper around fetch. So I export like a git and a put method. Delete and patch are coming soon because I actually ran into use cases for them. Like that's the cool thing. When you have packages, you can start really small. And then as your use cases expand, so do your packages. You got to go back. You got to update them. And it's Mm kind of cool because you're working in your own little world and you kind of control all the little moving pieces. Although sometimes you like roll your eyes and go, oh man, I got to go do that. Do you get a lot of people that submit issues? It depends. Uh, Some of the packages are used a little bit more, others not so much. I made a few for like Twitch streaming that I know James Quick uses and a couple other folks that is like a countdown timer for your stream. You know, if it's about to start and you Mm want to like set a timer for five minutes, it's just a React hook that essentially returns the minutes and seconds remaining. Okay. And so I got a lot of feedback there because I kind of shopped that around a lot. You did one at Christmas around uh, with snow. I saw that one getting shared. I did. I was not the core maintainer for that, but I think I was one of the big vocal users. I think her name is Queen Ray on Twitter. She was the one who created yes. that. It's a Gatsby plugin and it like makes it, it uses like this canvas confetti library to like make it look like snow on your website. So fun. Yeah, that one was really cool. But actually, I did get a lot of feedback on that one. People were like, what if I don't want it? What if we want to support, you know, prefers reduced motion and all these kind of corner cases. So I was like, Uh I'm just going to take it off. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I think it came up because I had some snow on the advent of CSS site. Mm -hmm. And people were commenting that you had had snow as well. Mine was pure CSS. And I just rip the code off of somebody else's i didn't have like a npm package nice that's cool yeah Yeah. the canvas confetti package isn't necessarily tied with gatsby at all so you could implement like a js solution for it Mm -hmm. if you wanted to but css only i don't know like you're really good at that (laughs) stuff well like i said i ripped the code off of something else but i also figured if this is the advent of css i should do snow in css yeah yeah, uh, that's if true. Anybody went to look at the code. Yeah, it was actually pretty cool. It used a sat. Not, I don't want to go down a trail on this, but it used SAS to randomly generate a starting and an ending point, and then it would just animate between the two. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. So, like, 
every mm-hmm. build would you get a different set of snow essentially that's right that's cool that's really cool and i set mine up so it had 50 flakes you could change the number but it would loop through it 50 times but you could just set the number of flakes that you wanted and then that's how it would run you know it gets me thinking and we're going down a little bit of a css rabbit hole but CSS variables and just a smidge of JavaScript could probably do this as well, right? Mm -hmm. You probably have to make, what, 50 variables and you would use JavaScript to set the initial values. Yep. But I think it's the same kind of concept where you're doing it at compile time with SAS versus runtime with CSS Mm -hmm. variables. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, probably way more performant, I would assume. I don't know. Canvas confetti, if you're using a canvas element, it's probably not too bad either. But I definitely made my website chug when I went overboard on the snow. You could feel it. <laughs> yeah, A little blizzard action. I <laughs> don't have a lot of experience with Canvas. And James and I kind of have a joke because he was working on the JQQ memes generator. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to do some stuff with Canvas. And I was like, oh, you can do all that with an SVG. And so I tried to use that as a little code war to accomplish the same thing with SVGs. So my snow is all SVG flakes and all that fun stuff. You know, I feel like SVG is probably easier to pick up for most people because it feels like an HTML element more than Canvas does. You know, Canvas is like, here's a literal API to work with me. Whereas SVG, you're like, nest children all day, you know, and then you (laughs) have access to them. So yes, exactly. Probably a bit more approachable. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, what are some of these other packages you have listed? You have one for the Hue Light? Yeah, so the lights that you can see, Amy, uh, mm-hmm. I can control them with a node package. And there's a little bit of setup you have to do to like connect it to your bridge so that like nobody else from an external network can do this. Okay. But yeah, I use this on my Twitch streams where like you can redeem channel points to change the lights essentially. Awesome. That's so that cool. one was pretty popular. I think James is using that one. I was going to say, is that the too. one he's using? Okay. Yeah. Another one that I think got a bunch of downloads was ESLint config. I've kind of preset my ESLint config as an NPM package. And then it's like, in order to start a new project and use that config, you would just install it and then say like, config extends the name of that config. Nice. Yeah, because I've done that with uh, Airbnb and their package. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like they kind of set that that Mm-hmm. well-known standard and i kind of make different flavors of mine so here's my base config here's That's my perfect. eslint typescript config here's my eslint react config and you know certain projects kind of piece the configs that i need together essentially that's so great because i mean it goes back to what i said earlier i always change the same things in the yeah. airbnb config why not make my own yeah the ESLint config, I think, was a little bit confusing. I used West Bosses as a reference. But like mm-hmm. the way they package things up and export them is kind of weird. Mm-hmm. One we should talk about is Labman. I like to use the same set of labels on all my GitHub issues across mm-hmm. all my different repositories. Yes. And GitHub didn't have a way to clone labels. So I made Labman, which is like just a CLI utility that you can be like, nice. take all the labels from this repo and put it over here. Does it copy colors too? Yes, it does copy colors and That's the name. awesome. Yeah. Because I could see that being beneficial from a visual standpoint. Oh, yeah. I actually submitted an issue on the GitHub CLI. And like mm-hmm. as of, I think, like a couple weeks ago or like the most recent release, GitHub CLI version 2.9, they now have the ability to clone labels based off of essentially my CLI's you oh, know, that's um, awesome. imprint. Yeah. Really, really so cool. cool. Uh, so maybe one day, you know, I can deprecate this and just use the official version. But what I like is that mine still kind of allows you to do everything, like literally mm-hmm. take all of these labels and move them over here. You didn't get to mark yourself down as a GitHub contributor, did you? I was going to build the feature, but it was written in Go. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to learn a whole <laughs> new language for this. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And then you have a few with Gatsby. I got a few with Gatsby and Next. Gatsby and Next both have some of the same pain points for me. Like, for instance, their link component, they treat external links differently than internal links. And Mm -hmm. I just wanted to make something where I don't really care what I pass into the link component, whether it's external or internal. I just want it to work. So I made these tiny wrappers that just basically made an if statement and then either dropped an A tag on the page or the link component on the page. 
Again, just very small like utilities to make life easier. Yeah. Well, I mean, even the one where you have Gatsby next, Google Analytics, like that sounds so simple, but I always struggle like where does this go or trying to do that, but insert dangerously HTML tag. Yeah. You know, yeah, right. Like all that, all that script setup, right? Like you need to yeah. download the source script, the G tag script, and then run some initial JavaScript. And so I was like, this should just be bundled up somewhere where all you have mm-hmm. to do is say Google Analytics and what's my you know, ID. And that's Mm -hmm. it. That's it. And so I try not to think twice about any of these things. Mm -hmm. That's so great. So how many times do you do a task before you're like, I'm making a package? I think it's like three. Three is my limit. I'm like, (laughs) I've already solved this before. And what's even more frustrating is if I haven't written a blog post on it and I have to like, Mm -hmm. then go look at old code and grab around. Next thing you know, I'm at my limit and I'm like, I'm just going to make a package. Mm hmm. And I have things that make making packages easier and we'll get to those in the future (laughs) because next thing you know, you're just kind of dog fooding yourself going, oh, I need to make a package and I don't want to think about how to do that twice either. Yeah. I wanted to take a brief minute to talk about daily.dev. First, I think we all recognize how hard it is to stay up to date with the latest and greatest within the tech community. But there are resources like daily.dev that provide a community-based feed of the best developer news, helping you stay current. Daily.dev aggregates hundreds of sources every few minutes and creates a personalized feed just for you according to your interests. So whether that's web dev, data science, or Elixir, anything you might be interested in, it has content for you. There is a web version of the product if you want to see exactly what the feed looks like. Otherwise, just go over to daily.dev and there's a link directly on the homepage to install their extension within your browser. From there, Anytime you want to load a new tab, you'll see the newsfeed. James and I both have it installed and use it to stay current ourselves, and so should you. So go check it out at daily.dev. Special thanks to daily.dev for being a Compressed FM sponsor. Well, since you mentioned your blog, I'm curious, how often do you write? I go through periods. When I'm actively coding, I'm writing less. But okay. then when I finish a project, I tend to look back on it and be like, what was hard or what did I mm-hmm. learn? And that's where I try to write. I think my eternal struggle is, should it be a blog post or should it be a YouTube video? That's like the mm-hmm. hardest decision in the world to make. I have also been curious about like validating YouTube ideas based on popular blog posts. That is a good idea. And I don't even know, I do have analytics on my site, but okay. nothing is like crazy popular because I don't get a lot of traffic in general. Uh, a yeah. lot of what I do is like, mostly for myself. And I, mm. I'm getting to that point where there's a lot of good stuff in there. Mm-hmm. And I built a search feature for essentially myself to be able to like, nice. look through my blog posts easier. Yeah, because I've been thinking about the idea of almost validating through micro content, like sending out tweets to see which tweets are popular, and then using those popular tweets to create popular blog posts, and then using that to create YouTube videos. And that kind of moves up in terms of level of difficulty and things like that. But I haven't done anything with that yet. <laughs> it's a good I idea. I got to tell you, I, you like you put so much thought into even that strategy that you just laid out. And I can tell you put so much effort into your YouTube videos. I am so the opposite. I will essentially write a first draft of a blog post and press go. Uh, I record my YouTube videos in one take and That's press so go. Good. Like I just try to keep that barrier to entry low. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what helps me produce. Granted, yeah. I haven't been the most active recently, job change and all, but mm-hmm. I think that's what makes me feel like it's not such a monumental task to put out a piece mm-hmm. of content. Well, and I think James would identify with you on a lot of that. And that's a conversation that we have often. So James is good about posting two to three times a week. He'll only take an hour to record that day, edit and publish. Like that's all it takes. But for me, it'll take like 10 to 20 hours, which is also embarrassingly, I haven't posted since October because it is a monumental task. And it's, you know, I've got to do all these things and trying to prioritize that where if you remove that barrier to entry, you know, is it a quality or quantity thing? Yeah. And I think you can slice it either way, especially on YouTube. I know James does videos that are uh, maybe a little bit more informal, like check out these extensions that are cool, or Mm -hmm. let me show you about this one feature that I really like. And like the level of learning in some of those videos isn't like super high. And so I think you can kind of push more of those out more frequently and 
you know, people like to consume that quickly. Whereas some of your stuff goes very in depth and walks through very large projects. And in those, I think I appreciate the extra time and effort in editing and thinking out, you know, the whole progression of what you're teaching. And I think it just comes down to YouTube has space for lots of different kinds of content. And you got to have creators on both sides. Yeah. Well, I don't want to detract too much, but I did have one more question for you. Have you experimented at all with shorts? None whatsoever. And I think one of the most difficult things online is where to put a video today. Is it an Instagram post? Is it an Instagram story? Is it an Instagram reel? Is it a YouTube video? Is it a YouTube short? Like your choice. Is it a TikTok, right? Now you have a new social media platform. Uh Like you make one video and you literally have endless options of where to post it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So like I'm just not sure at the end of the day. I think for me, everything would go into a regular old YouTube video if it's like above two or three minutes long. Yeah. Yeah. Do shorts have a time limit? I think it's 60 seconds. I've been wanting to experiment more with shorts, but I've heard different things and different things being you can possibly get more engagement and more subscribers, but that also changes the audience that you currently have. Because the different yeah. audience is watching shorts versus watching your long form content. So there's a balance there. Yeah. And I also think you'd probably want to keep the frequency of shorts higher than longer mm-hmm. YouTube videos. Like there's more appetite mm-hmm. for it. Right. Right. And it's a different time that you're watching them. So a lot of times shorts are when you're standing in line and have a min- literally a minute to watch something, whereas the long form stuff you can cozy up with your iPad at night or something and watch a bunch of them or binge or whatever. So it's just a different time, a different mindset that you're watching those videos. I got to ask, have you gotten monetized yet? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I've gotten, Congrats. yeah, and I've gotten a payout too. <laughs> All right. Um, I am fearful that my monetization will go away because I think YouTube requires you to post a video like once every six months or something to maintain that. And I'm getting close on that timeline, which is... Oh, wow scary, but I've only made like $30 a month and then they'll only pay out a hundred dollars. Yeah. I mean, it is still a hundred dollars, but they'll only pay out once you hit a hundred dollars. So I need to, sure. yeah, need to check, but I think I've only had like one payout, but yeah, it took me a little bit longer than most people. It took me about two years, I think to get monetized. So have you gotten monetized? That's awesome. I'm chasing it. I'm pretty yeah. close on subscribers. I'm, I think I'm like seven fifty. And just that watch time has got to build up too. Yeah. I thought that I basically hit the subscribers and then like I'd be monetized, but it took me a little bit longer to hit it on watch time. Cool. I wanted to take a brief minute to talk about Hashnote. So Hashnote makes it easy to start a blog in seconds on your own custom domain for free. It's fully optimized for developers and supports writing in Markdown, rich embeds, publishing from a GitHub repository, syntax highlighting, and edge caching with Next.js blogs deployed on Vercel. On top of this, your article gets instant readership from the growing community. James and I have talked before on the podcast about how valuable creating content is and how developing an online presence really does give you respect and credibility in the tech space. And really, there's no better way to do that than through Hashnode. So be sure to go to hashnode.com and join the community. Special thanks to Hashnode for being a Compressed FM sponsor. Well, we can jump back over to code packages and things. So you have code generation listed and generating all the different kinds of things. So is this different than your snippets? Yeah, so snippets are a little bit limited. Snippets can't really accept input programmatically. Like you can make Mm -hmm. snippets that have your tab stops and things like that. But snippets really only act within a single file. Like how would you make a snippet that creates multiple files that are customizable based on your input? That's a limitation. Mm -hmm. So there's this really awesome library called Plop, which has a Mm -hmm. really funny name. And Plop allows you to essentially like programmatically create generators for anything you could dream up (laughs) writing this down this is exactly what i've been looking for it's so sick yeah so like i use plop to do a whole lot of different things like one of my most basic plop workflows is like create a blog post in my website and essentially this is just a single file with a template like your front matter in a markdown Mm -hmm. file That's one of the more simple use cases, but it can get a little more complex. Like what if I wanted to create a React component with a test alongside it 
with a CSS module alongside it mm. and an index file or a barrel file to kind of spit all of that out in a single directory. Okay. Plop can do all of that as well. And so you can mm-hmm. say like, make a new component called my new component. And it would be able to, to case everything correctly. You could set up the imports and exports. And now making a component always comes with styles and tests. Oh, that's awesome. So can you create folders too, in addition to files? You can create folders, <sighs> files, you can append to files, update other files. It's really oh, handy. I feel like my mind just exploded. Just thinking about like project directories. I have like template folders yeah. everywhere where I just duplicate those templates, but like that templated folder, but this would solve it. That is the telltale sign that you need a code generator is if you have like a folder that says copy me when you want a new package or copy (laughs) me when you want a new component, (laughs) precisely when you should reach for Plop.js to do Uh, this kind of stuff. And again, all of my Plop helpers and actions and generators are all open source on my GitHub. And so you can look at those and kind of modify for what fits you. And of course, my Plop generators are all in line with my conventions. They use my NPM packages. They assume Mm. that, you know, my ESLint config is active and that I'm using TypeScript and things like that. So like my convention runs up and down the stack here. Oh my goodness. I love this. So not to derail even more than we already have. So I've been experimenting with Redwood JS. We had David Price on the podcast a few weeks ago. And I just love how Redwood has these generators set up. And it's had me thinking about this very problem (laughs) on so many levels. So if you were to create like a generator for a project, say I'm going to use on top of Redwood since I just mentioned that, would you use Plop or would you reach for something else like within the NPM package world or something like that? I think this is personal preference. Uh, I think okay. scaffolding an entire project with Plop would get incredibly tiresome. Okay. I actually reach for something we'll talk about next is GitHub template repositories. Uh, okay. That's what I use for that. But you can view this Plop and code generation as if you already have a project and you need to create like a new chunk of code or a new set of files. Mm-hmm. That's how you would kind of automate all that. So like, okay. for instance, let's say you're making like a new data model for, I don't know, cars, and you mm-hmm. need an endpoint that's essentially going to like perform all of your CRUD actions on it. You could use Plop to scaffold out like a Next.js API route with your handler that looks at your HTTP method. Is it a git? Is it a post? Is it a patch? Is it a delete? And then kind of scaffolds out what happens in each of those situations. Uh, nice. Okay, so tell me about this uh, GitHub repository templates. Yeah. So let's say I want to put all this together. I create an XJS project from scratch, and then I put all of my opinions inside of there, like my ESLint config, Prettier config, NPM packages. And on GitHub, when you commit this repository, there's a little checkbox that says, make this a template repository. So what you've just done is you've given this repo the ability to be kind of copy and pasted into a new repository. So like okay. you just made like a giant stamp that's like, this is a Next.js template repository. And you can use that stamp to create new projects from there on out. Now, we partner with a coding bootcamp called Learn, and they use this for class projects as a starting point. But I hadn't thought about using this as like my own flavor of how I like to modify and organize my Next.js projects. That's really interesting. And what's cool is I've even built template repositories kind of on top of template repositories. So I have like a a plain, (laughs) I have like a plain Next.js starter template repository, which I then used to like make another template repository that integrates with a database. And then I used that one to make another Ah. template repository that also integrates payments. And so now in pieces, I've built like a SaaS platform where wow. you know you're gated with user authentication and gated with payments and all that kind of stuff. So you can kind of when you make a new project, you can say, do I just need authentication and a database? Mm. Or do I need none of that? Or do I need payments and subscriptions and all that stuff? I can have to mess with this stuff. <laughs> My wheels are turning. Oh, that's so good. What's not good about this is it's gonna allow you and your 
yes mindset to just keep going. Yeah, I'll make another project for that. Yeah, I'll make another one. Yeah, I'll commit to that. <laughs> yes, that is um, <laughs> something that James tries to protect me from. And they protect me from the work. <laughs> They say if they ever need somebody to get excited about a project, they'll bring me in on it. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't take much. So then on top of that, you have a starter for every language project and framework. Yeah. So basically, like anytime I learn a new framework, you know, you need to integrate SEO and you got to figure out how to get Mm. all your configs and packages working with it and your opinions. And so like when I learned Svelte, I created like a Svelte starter template repository or one for Next.js or one for Gatsby. And so like, this is how I cement what I learn into like things that I can leverage again so that I have to Mm -hmm. relearn it every single time. This is brilliant. So when I set up, (laughs) so Advent of CSS and Advent of JavaScript, I mentioned that earlier, it's built on SvelteKit. I had to go back Mm -hmm. and refigure everything out for everything Svelte. (laughs) And then recently I was trying to create another just the landing page within SvelteKit and was trying to remember how did I set up all this markdown pieces and get all this to work. This is like the perfect solution because I could easily create that framework piece and then also use plop to generate like those markdown pieces. Because with markdown, you have to have the folder for markdown. You have to have the file that globs all of that together and then another file that creates that JSON. But this would handle all of that. For sure. Yeah. And so now you can make landing pages like real fast. Yes, this is awesome. This yeah, and so awesome. what's cool is it integrates really well with the GitHub CLI like we were talking about earlier. So like if you want to be able to make a new repository from one of your template repositories and clone it to your machine, it's like one command. Oh man, this is fascinating. So the example code for everybody that's listening, the example code that Brad shared in the notes is using compressed FM, which is funny that you mentioned that because at work we've talked about the compressed FM repository is open source, but using that as a starting point for other podcasts that we might want to create through Zeal and things like that, this would be the perfect opportunity to turn compressed FM into a template repository that then we can reuse a lot of those components like the custom audio player. But you can make the creation of that super easy with this line of code. Yeah. And the way that I would kind of approach that problem is you have to think about what you can split out first. So that custom Mm -hmm. audio player can be split out into two pieces. One is a custom hook that I think you have Mm -hmm. already done. Mm -hmm. That's just the logic behind the player. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the player in and of itself could be split out into a, you know, NPM package package for the React component. And then your template repository would install those or it would come with those pre-installed and utilize them on a page. One of the things I try to do with my template repos is to pull out any styling or branding or opinions in that sense so that you really are working with like kind of black text on a white page at the get-go so that like otherwise you'd be like undoing all of the styling and branding Mm -hmm. of compressed every time you would start a new podcast. So yeah, you got to like strip it down. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh man, I love that. (laughs) You just created like 50 more projects for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so like working from bottom to top, these template repositories are kind of like the biggest tool that I use to just spin up new projects, explore new ideas, cement what I've learned and have like really good reference points uh, of everything that I am capable of. And so... You know, if you want to kind of imitate this structure, everything we've really talked about today is open source on my GitHub and it can give you endless hours of fun. <laughs> oh man, I, <laughs> I'm i sure I will spend endless hours on all of this. So the next section of the show is our picks and plugs. And this is where we pick something that we like and plug something that we have worked on. So Brad, do you have any picks and plugs for us? Yeah, I definitely have something that I want to pick. I've never done any... VR stuff before, mm-hmm. but recently my company sent me an Oculus Quest 2 and it's my first experience in VR and I was worried that it was going to feel like really cheesy and gimmicky, but yeah. man, like it is really immersive and really cool and I've I've been loving it. I'm finding myself playing virtual reality games more than like sitting at my gaming PC and like playing mm-hmm. stuff there. Like even stuff as simple as walkabout mini golf on the quest Mm -hmm. it's just like 
a great way to relax and it's really calming and it's really cool to just be in these different environments and play some mini golf. Yeah, for sure. We got one at work for Christmas one year and it came in the mail and Henry's like, oh, great, another device. And I put it on, I was like, this is, it was the most surprising thing that I have done in a long time. And I was like, no, you have got to try this. And he's like, okay, (laughs) this is pretty cool. It is also one of our favorite things just to introduce people to. Another great one to add to your list is, it's like somebody's plank. I usually just call it the plank. You do? Okay, so for anybody that's listening and has not experienced it, it's like you get into an elevator. So you have to have a little bit of space to do this, but you get into an elevator and it really does feel like you are riding an elevator up. They had the elevator music. You can kind of see the floors go by and then you get to the top of a skyscraper and you walk out onto a plank. And what is so crazy to me is that when I'm doing it, like my, I'm not really super afraid of heights or anything like that, but my feet start sweating. My palms are sweating. Like I get all clammy being up there. And then what's crazy is you can actually jump off the plank if you want. And like my stomach jumped when I did it. It's just amazing to me that you can have an experience that is that immersive. You know, it didn't hit me that bad as you described it, but my wife could not for the life of her walk off that plank. (laughs) She couldn't do it. It's crazy. Well, this is like before we got the plank game, I was trying to show my parents like, oh, look at this. And we got the National Geographic's When I thought this will be easy, it'll show them how beautiful and immersive it is. And we were in my parents' kitchen and my mom kept backing up against the stove and the stove wasn't on, but I was like trying to guide her away from the stove and she just started yelling, stop, stop. And she's on Machu Picchu and I was like trying to push her off. (laughs) So she was like, stop. Uh, But anyways, they still gave me a hard time about that. Cool. So, and then you have a couple of TV shows and I really wanted you to say one because I've gotten a lot of people that have commented on the show (laughs) to me. Yeah. I just finished this and it's very fitting because the show is called Yellowstone. It's very like cowboy country. Uh, It's set in Montana, but the main character's family name is Dutton. And so how fitting that, you know, it's your last (laughs) name. I thought you picked it on purpose. (laughs) I did. I just, I honestly, I really love the show. Like, I'm down in Texas and, you know, I really like country stuff and the show just like resonated with me in that sense. Okay. And then the last one you have listed was Halo. And I wanted to comment on that one. I mean, I'm interested to hear your thoughts, but my husband's been watching it and I've like rolled my eyes, but then I've also gotten sucked into it. (laughs) So He's like, you like this show. I just started it last night. And like, I've been playing Halo since I was like, you know, a kid, you know, Uh I had the first Xbox, I played Halo there. So watching it on TV is definitely different. Uh, But I got through one episode last night, and it's starting to get good. Like the end Mm -hmm. of the first episode has got me like, go Master Chief, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I've gotten sucked into it. He's like, you enjoy this, don't you? And I'm like, no. (laughs) Yes. Is there only five episodes, though? Is that what I saw? Uh, I think so. Something like that. And I think that they've been doing, I don't know if it's like a full release or if they've been like just releasing one each week. Ah, I got to keep my eyes out on it then. It's got me hooked, though. There's a bunch of stuff out right now that I really want to see. Like, I want to see the We Crashed. Have you watched that with? um, No, what's that one? Anne Hathaway, it's the story behind We Work, but I'm just a big fan of Anne Hathaway and it has her in it. Um, gotcha, gotcha. But it's like, um, it's like not a documentary. It's like uh, right. Mockumentary a, a show or, about We Work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or drama. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, there's a bunch of stuff. There's that other one about Elizabeth and the that whole drug tech scandal. There's lots of good stuff out right now. And then for your plugs, where can we find you? Yeah, I think one of the things that I want to focus on is trying to hit that thousand subscriber mark on my YouTube channel. So if you go to youtube.com slash Brad go check out what I have there. I talk about a lot of this stuff that we talked about on today's episode on my YouTube channel. So hopefully you find some good examples and practical tips over there. And, you know, like we mentioned through the episode, all of my open source packages are out there to find. We'll put the links to my like NPM profile so you can see all the packages that I publish and all the GitHub template repositories, which is really like the key to kind of starting new projects really quickly. Those links will be in the show notes. Okay, so I do have a 
pick for this week. This one's actually a little awkward, but it's fantastic. So I ran in a half marathon this past Saturday. It was hot and hilly, but I'm so glad I did it. It did not go exactly how I wanted it to, but it went about how I expected it to. But anyways, there is a product called Body Glide, which this is why I said it's a little awkward, but you put it anywhere that you think you're going to have chafing. So I've run when it's like pouring outside and I was afraid I was going to get blisters all over my feet. I put it all over my feet, did not have a single blister. It's fantastic. So I would definitely recommend that for anybody that's exercising or even if you're not, if you're prone to chafing, it's fantastic. I've got such like a dad story. Uh, (laughs) Yes, please. We we went to Disney World and um, we walked around the first day and my foot just got totally tore up with like Mm -hmm. a blister. And I'm like, I'm not going to make it the rest of the trip. Yeah. And I wound up using mole skin to cover it up. And I was good the rest of the week. But like, yeah, if you get like a bad blister, like you're just taken out, especially of a trip where there's so much walking. Yes. Yes. Well, we were in Florida a couple weeks ago and I got a nasty blister. I've It's been a while since I've had blisters that bad. Like they were on both of my feet. But anyways, I got a blister Band-Aid and those are fantastic. The ones that are specifically made for blisters because they'll help. This is again, gross, drain your blister, but also heal it. <laughs> okay. We can talk about more pleasant things. So for my plug, I'm going to plug the Everything's Felt course. So this is a course that James and I have been talking about forever And we've been saying that it will launch in May. So I have an update. I need to update the website. But it is going to launch in June. And the reason it's getting pushed back a month is because we are working directly with Supabase. And they are rewriting their entire authentication system. So we want to make sure that our course has the latest and greatest. So it's pretty cool because we've been working directly with them. And hopefully it'll be the first course that comes out that actually has their new auth system. But we just didn't want to have to release the course and then rework all of those videos or for them to be obsolete within the next two weeks. So anyways, you can look for that in June, but you can go ahead and pre-order now and everything is marked down 40%. So you can go to everythingsfelt.com. Brad, it has been a pleasure to have you. Thanks again for coming on the show. We will definitely have you back. Thank you so much. And then to pull James's line for now, that's all we got.